You're listening to the Week Ahead podcast from Strong Towns, hosted by me, Rachel Quedno. This is your chance to catch up on the latest events and goings-on behind the scenes of the Strong Towns organization. Tune in every Monday for more updates. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Week Ahead podcast. I'm your host, Rachel, and my guest today is Strong Towns member and writer, Alex Baca. Alex, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thanks for having me. So can you take um, a minute or two to just tell us a little bit about yourself and also um, how you've been involved with Strong Towns or how you even found Strong Towns in the first place? I'm always curious to hear that. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I have no idea how I found Strong Towns. I read the internet frequently, so I am sure I ran across a blog post that Chuck was writing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, uh, but what is funny is I remember reading uh, Jeff Speck's Walkable City uh, and then kind of like connecting the dots because there's a bit about Chuck in there. Yeah. Um, but, um, and, you know, being like, oh, like, that's like the same thing as this blog that I keep seeing in the world. Um, so, yeah, uh, Strong Towns is great. I'm a member. Uh, I think you guys do great work. And sometimes I write for you, which is always a really awesome opportunity. <laughs> um, so thanks for having me. Um, and I live in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, by way of San Francisco and Washington, D.C. Um, I've worked in bike advocacy in a couple of different capacities as both the staffer of an advocacy organization and now a board member. Um, I also most recently ran Cleveland's bike sharing system. Um, and as mentioned before, I also write stuff sometimes. So, yeah. And you're also, are you in school doing public policy? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I'm halfway through a master of public administration and policy. So I am looking forward to that being done in a year. <laughs> cool. So um, you have an article that you just wrote for us that will be published by the time this podcast runs about housing as a platform for building wealth and kind of the flaws of that model. I know that you've, you've written and talked about housing a lot, um, at least from what I've seen on like City Lab and Twitter and whatnot. Um, yeah, what, well, let's start with like what draws you to that topic in particular? uh like housing or just yeah housing issues yeah, housing. why okay. <laughs> are you interested in those yeah you know it's funny i uh i feel like housing and home is sort of a recurring theme in you know my own life i mean it is obviously for many people it's like a touchstone like obviously shelter is a really important concept um i you know i think as like a motif in my life it's been particularly significant um i like remember being this is so corny but like being in high school and like the option to like do the project instead of take a test thing Mm -hmm. is what availed myself of often and uh i did this whole like project on suburban sprawl and that was kind of you know I grew up in central Maryland, uh, close to Columbia or not close to Columbia, but approximately from Columbia. Uh, you know, my parents are from Baltimore, uh, and their families had moved to the suburbs certainly as part of, um, white flight. Um, so that was just something that had been interested, interesting to me. Um, I, I read a lot. This is mostly what I read about. I, went to college with the intent of getting a planning degree. I've had this wacky academic path um, that ended until I enrolled in grad school and, you know, writing this thesis on gentrification and displacement in Anacostia, which is a neighborhood 
in Southeast Washington, D.C. Um, so, you know, it's been like, this is just kind of like what I care about. <laughs> um, and it's yeah. what I, you know, at this point, like it's what I've sort of built my knowledge base around. Um, I, you know, so I feel like sometimes I, you know, talk back and forth between like housing and transportation. But the truth is like, you don't have to talk back and forth between those things because like, they're really, really, really interconnected. Um, and, you know, one influences the other. And, you know, all of this is really dependent on land use. And so much of, you know, our land use is determined by cultural values. You know, I talk a lot about like Euclid versus Ambler being Ohio's like sardonically our finest export. Like it's a really pretty racist, you know, case basically like, you know, that was the inception of zoning. And so I live near Ohio now, which is sometimes amusing to me. Um, but, you know, so, you know, I think that you, I think it's this really interesting mashup of like the technical stuff, right. Of like, how the technicalities of housing, the technicalities of transportation, the way that you finance all of that stuff, the way that that actually gets built is so, so heavily culturally influenced. I, you know, I did ultimately graduate with an American studies degree, not a planning degree. Um, so as a, as a cultural studies person, um, you know, I do come to this very much as like, how does what we believe influence, you know, where we live and what we do and the decisions that we make, um, you know, we're all operating inside of these systems and structures and how, you know, how do we make it better? What makes it worse? Like all of those questions I think are, are really important to be asking. Um, so I, you know, I feel always sort of, you know, conflicted about living in Cleveland. Sometimes it's tough for me because I'm not from here and I miss DC and, you know, I, anybody who follows me on Twitter knows that I have like a lot of feelings about places, right? I, I'm very sympathetic, you know, loving where you live or, you know, feeling, you know, like just, you know, having complicated feelings about that. And I, it, in the piece that I, you know, just recently wrote for you guys, I, you know, I am sympathetic to, you know, the sentiment of home. I think that is really important. Um, and I also, you know, I just want to be able to look at that in, an objective way that sort of accounts for as much as possible. Okay. So let's talk about this article that you wrote. I, I presented this topic to you of like housing as a platform for, you know, building household wealth and stuff. And obviously it's a huge complex topic, but I knew you'd be able to tackle it and you did a good job, um, addressing like a lot of issues in a short amount of space. So I don't know. Yeah. Tell me about your thoughts on that. It also coincided with an article from City Observatory about a similar topic like age and how, you know, people of an older generation are much more able to build wealth through housing than people of our generation. Yeah. A lot of stuff going on here. Yeah. I, so yeah. So I, I love this assignment. It was like, it just felt like very, very me. <laughs> so I was very flattered that you sent it to me. Um, so that was really cool. Um, and you know, it's also like, it's like basically like a PhD thesis, right? Like, you know, who, who, yeah, who, probably who, several. who is ownership for and, and who, um, you know, who, who are even, who are even homes for, right. If, if we're gonna, you know, and in some ways home ownership and, and homes and houses sort of like those concepts get collapsed onto each other in, I think, like, vernacular. So, and so I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, but, yeah, I mean, so it's a big, huge topic, but, like, I love think pieces, so, like, it was fun to write, but I had to rip it up and start again a few times. Um, you know, I had initially written this personal essay about, you know, my own decisions in buying a home and, you know, my own, as I said, you know, my own conflicts about 
being somewhere and, you know, loving the physical structure of my house, which I am, you know, I, I love my house and, you know, feeling, you know, having very complicated feelings about being in Cleveland and stuff like that. Um, and then it was just like, that. Ah, this is like not what, <laughs> this is not exactly like what I was going for. Um, so, you know, as I said, I, you know, I feel like what I wrote was ultimately, you know, it, it was fairly critical of homeownership, but that comes from a place of like understanding and feeling very deeply about, you know, what does home mean and what, what does a space habit mean? So like, I, you know, that comes from a place that is just like really, really important to me. Um, so, you know, beyond that, like, I, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot to pull apart there, right? It's like, you know, who, who is even capable of buying a home? And we know that it's mostly, you know, it is white Americans and it's older Americans that are truly benefiting from having been able, you know, having been able to buy homes in the past, which is what, Joe Courtright brings up in his gerontopoly, I was having an awful time trying to type that consistently, you know, gerontopoly uh, post, which, you know, is the, the, the sort of like dream hoarders thesis, right? That, you know, if you bought, if you were lucky enough to buy in at a time that it was actually affordable to do so and your wages, you know, weren't completely out of whack with the requirements for a down payment, like you are benefiting like crazy now. And, you know, even people who, like me, you know, were able to buy, you know, post-recession and, you know, you know, we are still in the sort of like rockier terrain, right? I mean, I've had discussions about selling my house because some stuff in my life is up in the air and, you know, I co-own it by, you know, former partner and, you know, I, without getting too much into my personal drama, which is just like, I'm totally fine talking about, but, you know, I think that, you know, there are certainly, you know, owning a home, even though you have a 30 year mortgage, is not like your life is not going to be the same for 30 years. <laughs> like, yeah. And so you, you run into these questions. And I, I remember talking to my mom about this and, you know, without like trying to blow up my parents spot. I mean, they've bought and sold houses. They, you know, they have been landlords. They have, you know, had tenants and, you know, they, they do real estate stuff. And I've been engaged with that. And, you know, I was talking to my mom about, you know, wow, selling the house, not selling the house, whatever. And she was like, it's a crapshoot. Like, you know, this used to be like a sure thing that you would invest in that would make you money. And now I'm not so sure. Um, And that's coming from, from someone who is directly benefiting from the entrenched nature of home ownership and who bought in at the right time. Um, So, you know, I think that that's really interesting um, that, we should be asking questions of, you know, not only is like, is it worth calling like a physical structure on land an asset <laughs> that appreciates, you know, or doesn't appreciate, you know, due to a bunch of like confluence of factors or whatever, like is, is that, you know, besides the financial question of like, is housing, housing a worthwhile investment? You know, it's like, does this even, do markets make sense anymore? Like, I think, you know, there is that, that sort of bearing down, especially because, and and I will say this over and over, I've lived on the East Coast, I've lived on the West Coast, I've lived in, you know, very expensive metro areas, they do tend to dominate the discourse. Um, And I think that we have this sort of like national frenzy and anxiety around housing that is driven a lot by what is happening in those metro areas. That is not to say that there are not substantial issues, even crises in places that are not DC, San Francisco, Boston, Seattle, et cetera. Um, so it's a very long-winded way of, you know, saying, like, you know, we have this entrenched homeowner class that <clears throat> bought in at one point, um, and that may just be pure luck. Like, so much stuff is just random happenstance, right, that that was, like, great time to buy a home, and it worked. Um, 
but the you know the cultural export from a lot of those homeowners is now shutting people out so not only do we have this systemic structure that's shutting people out and you know a racialized and you know even you know based on your 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 gender and your race and your education level and you know all of those categorical inequities um you know you have people who are actively just like shutting out anything new and you know i think that there's an example in this story about something that's like just you know down the road (laughs) from me at the five-story building proposed on a surface parking lot like that's that's a good thing to fill in in one of Cleveland's more walkable neighborhoods that it's one of the few census tracts in Cleveland that is actually gaining residents as opposed opposed to losing them. You might want to build more housing here. You might especially want to build more housing on a surface parking lot. And you have people freaking out about like, ah, the soul of the neighborhood. Like that, that's a, you (laughs) you can't, you can't change systems and structures overnight, but you can be a person who doesn't say that. Yeah. Let's switch gears to talk about your recent article about bike share in City Lab. Um, what cities need to understand about bike share now? You kind of like went through a whole bunch of recent updates in bike share, especially dockless bike share, which I'm kind of curious about because I honestly haven't seen any dockless bikes yet. They're, they have not <laughs> reached my part of the country, I guess. But um, yeah, d- tell me about that piece. Yeah, so that was, you know, it was so funny. I, uh, you know, I was running Cleveland's bike share system for a year and a half. And I realized that, like, uh, you know, people just don't have, uh, like, there's not exactly, like, common knowledge for how bike share as an industry works. And that's okay, because bike share is a really young industry. Um, But a lot of the questions that I, you know, I would get when I talk to people, you know, would be like, oh, are the, you know, what are the what are the bikes like? Like, why are the bikes not like the ones in New York? Or, you know, why, you know, oh, you don't have like kiosks. Like, you know, why is it like that? So like, there's a lot of like user experience, like there's user side things that, you know, citizens and, you know, like visitors and, you know, regular riders and stuff are, are seen in systems in their own cities. And they're different from city to city because like every bike share system is different. Um, and there's not there's not like a like a good common understanding of that. So like that was actually something that I ran into a lot where I would find myself being like, yeah, the bikes are, you know, oh, have you been to Chicago? Have you been to New York? Have you seen the bike show system there? Like, yeah, you have. OK, well, our bikes are not like that. <laughs> and, um, you know, and today you download an app on your phone. And like, I mean, this is like I was doing lots of outreach events and stuff and like having to explain this. So it's like people, I think, like our common understanding of bike share sort of stops at seeing um, like a rack of bikes like publicly available. And then we don't actually know much beyond that. So I thought it would be helpful to write about the industry as it currently existed, because it seemed to me like a lot of, um, I wouldn't even say misconceptions, misconceptions, but a lot of the uh, like chatter and discourse around Oculus was like, uh, you know, saying stuff about existing like docked systems that was not necessarily like true. Like there seemed to be this little like sentiment like floating around, especially on Twitter, that all the existing like docked bike share systems were um, like 100% public, <laughs> which mm, is yeah. actually true, right? Like there's, um, you know, a lot of them are public-private partnerships. Like Cleveland's was uh, did not have the revenue aspect of a public-private partnership, but was functionally, you know, there was public money, there was private money, it was operated by a, you know, a private operator, but owned by the county, the, the sponsor was a hospital, 
network. Uh, you know, so so like, I think you see stuff with like DC system, which is publicly owned and publicly funded, in and it's a big system and it's very popular. I think it's a really you know, Cabby is amazing. I I love it, but um, the sentiment that just because it's docked and public doesn't mean it's 100% publicly owned and it doesn't mean that somebody's not making money off of it because a lot of those even public funded systems have private operators that make their money off of bike share operations or they make money off of selling sponsorships for bike share systems um so the idea of you know this flurry of dockless bikes being this you know also flurry of you know private <laughs> venture capital backed you know equipment in in the public right-of-way is actually um, you know, not—it's uh, not so new, right? Um, a lot of the, a lot of these systems are, in some ways, privately funded and privately backed, and someone is making money off of them. Um, so, bike shares a business, etc. <laughs> um, so that was a—you know—that's just one example. But there were some things that I was like noticing in sort of like the um, discomfort with dockless, which I like totally understand. Like, you know, new things are sometimes uncomfortable. Um, like that we're actually not grounded in like the reality of what bike share was. And that's like not anybody's fault. It's just like a really confusing world that like mixes up like government procurement and public transportation and amenities and sponsorships and like all of these weird threads that you don't typically see pulled together in that sort of way. Do you have any like general quick take on the doc list thing? I know like some people are you know, have been complaining about it and I feel like it's all over the news lately. Like what, what is your <laughs> two cents about dockless? Is it a good thing? Is there ways it could be improved? Yeah, I think, well, I think both those things are true. I think it's a good thing and I think it can be improved. Um, you know, for me, I think that anything that, uh, gets people, um, like biking or walking or, you know, out of their cars really is, is a good thing. Right. And so more bikes for more people in more places is like, there are of course tons and tons of caveats to that statement, but fundamentally like more bikes for more people in more places, it's like so, so, so important. And doc can achieve that at a scale that doc systems through no particular fault of their own. And I did try to be really clear about that uh, for city lab um, just can't really achieve given the current sort of resource pool and the way that things are funded and implemented. Yeah. So I think is it is like, yes, it is a good thing. As for what you actually do with it when it gets there, um, you know, my sort of like take on it is that I think that, you know, cities can and should, you know, you can say regulate, you can also say shape, you can also say, you know, like whatever. <laughs> um, the experience of DACLAS, um for users specifically mm -hmm. um, that, you know, if you're considering ways to harness dockless because i think like getting tons of bikes you know in your city operating with venture capital like functionally for free to a municipality is a really interesting thought experiment and that you know harnessing that to do the most good for the most people means you know creating an experience that works for again the most people not necessarily um like a vocal minority, <laughs> I would say. Um, so I, I think this, I think DACLAS is really cool from like a, like a wonky, like public administration standpoint, because it's this like, it is, it's this private thing in the public space and cities have the capacity to leverage that in the service of their public. And I think that that is like such an interesting question and you don't really see that scenario um that often in in what is kind of a like low stakes sort of thing like i think bikes are really important but they are like much 
like they're way lower stakes than like housing or like building a road or whatever. So, um, so I think it's a really cool, you know, opportunity. And I hope that municipalities, you know, take advantage of it and, you know, are really thoughtful and, you know, try to think critically about like, okay, how do we make it so that like we get people to actually use these things? And, you know, that's sort of where my recommendation for, like tons and tons of bike parking comes from, right? Which I sort of lay out for City Lab. Is that, you know, if you install places for people to put these, then that helps with the bike clutter, but it also gives your existing, you know, people who ride bikes in your city a place to to park bikes. Like you, your city probably needs more bike parking anyway. It can help, it, it will help your existing residents. Um, you know, I would love to see a bigger push for the data from these bikes, as well as, you know, municipalities basically requiring open APIs from these companies. Um, Spur just wrote a really good piece about not DACA specifically, but, you know, uh, transit tech, like API kind of stuff and how having that be public is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, sometimes this is, this is a little like unsatisfying, especially for like administrators who are on the front lines of dealing, you know, with people who do, you know, either call or email to complain. Like it doesn't really help them to say like, Oh, well, we asked for like the open data and we installed a bunch of bike parking. If somebody is like, I don't like these, I don't like what color they are, which is like legitimately a thing that people had said about bikes in DC. So, you know, I am sympathetic to dealing with some of the, you know, outside complaints, which tend to be the ones that get to be heard. But, like, I would love to see Dockless, like, you know, be this, like, just really interesting experiment of, like, how to how to shape a private, you know, privately owned thing into an actual resource for people, like, through, you know, regulation, through, you know, policy, through that kind of stuff. So I think there's, like, there's a ton of opportunity there. Um, I think understanding existing bike share and also just, like, not being scared of dockless is really important. I I do not think that like I understand that cities want to protect their investment in existing bike share systems, but I really don't think that uh, dockless will take away from a dock systems like market share. I think you know my my guess is that you would actually see bike share be getting more bike share, right? Um, and. and and, and so, so I, I, I am sympathetic to, you know, of course, like wanting to protect an investment. I know that's really important. Some cities have put in a good deal of money to their bike share systems, but I don't think that they should be scared of backless. And I would just like to see, you know, like interest and passion and, you know, sort of an investment in making this work for people. Um, and I hope that that leads to a sort of like more uh, flexible framework for how we consider both our public space and mobility stuff. Cause all of this stuff is changing and like in two weeks, it's going to be totally different. True. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, the city lab thing, I, I, I wrote like a first draft of that in February and then I had to like continue to tweak it. And then it was like, ah, crap, I have to like add in stuff about scooters. Cause like scooters are a thing now yeah, as, true. Of, as of March. <laughs> like, um, so all this stuff is going to change. So I, you know, the one other thing I would urge any administrators and officials and politicians or whatever to, to do is not commit to companies. I know it's really attractive to do that. It's really nice when somebody comes in and, and gives a, you know, a really great presentation and they're a trusted partner. And those relationships can be super valuable between contractors and governments. Like those, those can be really successful. But in like this like weird world of like micro mobility or whatever we're calling it, like the stuff is just going to keep changing. So like, rather than committing to like one company that like you, a government has decided that you prefer because they sold you on something better. They made you feel more comfortable than a competitor, which is totally understandable. Um, You know, don't commit to that company, commit to the concept and, you know, figure out 
how to make a concept work because like we don't know who's going to be around in two years um and i think that you know that's just it's just a very different way of thinking about government and contracting and procurement and and sometimes it's hard to wrap your head around but i think that that could be you know a pretty interesting thing moving forward awesome well before we wrap up i just want to mention for our listeners that Chuck is going to be giving presentations in Peoria, Illinois on May 9th and 10th. Um, a couple different presentations. We have a meetup, so party in Peoria. Uh, if you're in the area, please join us for that. Um, Alex, final question. Have you been uh, reading or listening to or watching anything interesting lately? doesn't have to be strong towns, urban planning related. <laughs> I love this question and I love it when you ask your podcast guests this question because I get a lot of reading recommendations from like what other people tell me, which is yeah, kind of fascinating. Yeah, me too. Uh, so, so yeah, so I, um, I, I'm not saying this to like plug myself, but I wrote this really long like books that you should read because I've read them post on media. Like, I mean, just, like it I was kind of a joke that. because like a lot of people ask me like, oh, like why do you think about cities the way that you think about them um in in sort of sometimes as a sort of like why you know why you believe what you do thing and I was like ah I've just been reading like this stuff for so long and like I buy books and I reread them and I mark them up and stuff so I just kind of listed all the titles on my bookshelf and then wrote blurbs about them but then I was like I should reread more of these books that I haven't reread in a while so I'm reading Jeff Chang's Can't Stop Won't Stop which is a history of the hip hop generation. Um, it's mostly, you know, it's totally set in New York. Um, and I, you know, it's such an awesome book. I mean, Chang cool. is an awesome, awesome writer, but he is able to weave together like all of this stuff about just like the city and art and stuff like that. And, you know, I love it. If you've read Marshall Berman's All of a Solid Melts Into Air, it's like a really good air to that, I guess. And, and so, you know, that's one of my books and, I love Can't Stop, Won't Stop, and I haven't read it in five or six years. And so it's been really interesting to reread it now as we have sort of these renewed conversations about, like, what the role of the public sector is in certain things. And I think Chang is really good at tying together, you know, some of the actions of New York's mayoral administrations and how they impacted, you know, both, like, policing of communities that were generating a lot of, like, this, like, new culture. So it's so good, and I'm so happy to be rereading it. And I'm so happy it's finally warm in Cleveland, and I can read on my porch. Oh, nice. Uh, well, I'm kind of between books and stuff right now, so unfortunately I don't have any recommendations <laughs> to share that I haven't already shared. Rewatching The Crown constantly, because I'm obsessed with it. Um, I haven't watched it, but people say it's great. <laughs> it is, especially if you are an Anglophile like me. <laughs> So Alex, uh, thanks for being on the podcast and for all our listeners, I would say the best place to find Alex is on Twitter because she's super active and always posts <laughs> interesting stuff, conversations, etc. And her writing is in a lot of different places too. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Okay, take care. Bye. All right. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.